Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. The relationship between a surgeon and patient is unique. Although our conversation with Dr. Tim Pollock was wide in scope and interest, discussion of this topic was a real treat. Tim Pollock is a surgical oncologist and the surgeon-in-chief of the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. He was kind enough to chat with us about academic productivity, leadership, passion, and even his research on shared decision-making and surgical regret. Check out the links for below for all the papers we discuss. Thank you so very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on Cold Steel. It's a it's a real honor, uh, and we certainly understand how how uh, how <laughs> the the breadth and the depth of of all the things that you that you do in a day. So th- thank you so much. I, most of us, I think, it's fair to say, in North America and probably the world, know exactly who you are with regard to you know some of your papers and and your and your uh, your professional side but i was curious for maybe those who don't know you as well if you could talk about where you grew up and you know why medicine and in particular at the end of the day why hpb yeah absolutely well first of all uh, chad and um amir thank you so much for having me on uh, cold steel i really appreciate it you know i always say one of the very best things about uh, academic medicine and academic surgery other people that you meet and, um, you know, I've been really lucky to get to know you, Chad, in particular, um, over the years through uh, different associations and have a lot of respect for um, you. So uh, this is a real honor for me today to be able to chat with the both of you. So thank you very, very much. Um, yeah, so, I mean, a little bit about me. I mean, I, I, I grew up uh, in uh, Massachusetts and, uh, you know, I know obviously you're a Canadian, Chad, and big hockey fan. I'm a Bruins fan. Um, I grew up in the uh, just outside the Boston area, um, in um, you know a town that about thirty miles due north of Boston. Um, you know, both of my parents, um, you know, didn't go to high school. Uh, you know, my dad and my brother are now used car salesmen still in Massachusetts. Um, I think that uh, instilled in me uh, as a young person a really strong work ethic. Seeing my dad own his own business and going to work every day, coming home every night, late hours, and, you know, really um, having your own business, um, just this work ethic that, you know, how hard you work, what you put into it is what you get out of it. Um, and I think uh, from very early on, both he and, and my mother instilled me a very strong uh, work ethic. And then, um, you know, was uh, lucky enough to uh, do my undergrad in uh, at Georgetown, where I actually was a theology major, which uh, comes up uh, later on because some of my research interests have delved into uh, ethics and um, now in religion and spirituality in the cancer journey, and then did med school up at Tufts um, in Boston, residency at Michigan, um, and then spent some time at the Massachusetts General Hospital with uh, Ken Tanabe. Um, in his lab, and then did my fellowship at um, MD Anderson with Nick Vote. And that kind of segues into your question, like, you know, why uh, medicine and why HBB? I would say why um, medicine um, was just really kind of, you know, the obviously the ability to 
kind of interface with people in a very special way, um, you know, to um, be part of um, you know, people's lives in um, a unique way, um, to be part of their healthcare journey, um, and to be part of potentially trying to heal them, um, both physically and, you know, frankly, spiritually and um, emotionally. And then I would say HPB um, was largely because of some of my mentors, you know, working with uh, Ken Tanabe at MGH, who's an HPB surgeon, um, and uh, being at an impressionable point in my uh, life as a resident and seeing uh, Ken and the type of person he was, the type of surgeon he was and is. And then really uh, Nick Vote, who has been my mentor and my friend for, you know, well over a decade now, um, you know, just um, kind of uh, pointed me into the direction of HPB. And I like HPB probably for like most surgeons because it's tough. You know, we never take the easy road out, road, um, out of places. You know, it's challenging surgery. Uh, every surgery is different. Um, you know, obviously, um, I, I kind of favor liver a little bit more than the pancreas, but it, there's no two liver cases that are the same. Um, and just the intellectual and technical challenges that um, HPB uh, brings with it, um, I think it's just so exciting every day to uh, uh, tackle, tackle those types of cases. Dr. Pollock, uh, as I said, kind of before we started the the show uh, I've been a huge fan and I know there's there's a lot of us north of the border that have uh, been a huge fan of of your your academic work uh, and and really your your voice for science and and the impact that you've had on the field how do you think about academic surgery and and how do you remain and how have you been so productive over your career well, you know, I feel passionately about academic surgery for uh, so many different reasons. Um, and now and currently as my role as a, as a chair and trying to, um, you know, build a department that reflects um, a solid foundation and grounding in excellent clinical care and also, um, you know, reflects strong uh, academic credentials. You know, I always say that, you know, we're clinicians first, you know, um, I'm not a researcher who does surgery. Um, I'm a surgeon who does research, and um, and that's the image that um, hopefully you know the department that we have here at Ohio State reflects that is that we're surgeons, um, yet surgeons need to be um, scientists. Um, we know what questions are important because we are at the interface of science and medicine, and day in and day out we care for patients. We know what the clinical problems are. We know the questions that have not been answered yet on the clinical front lines, and who better to identify the difficult questions that need to be tackled in the laboratory setting, the clinical trial setting, the population health setting, uh, the big data setting, uh, than uh, surgeons. So I feel very passionately that we can be excellent surgeons, and we also need to be uh, excellent scientists. And I think just like the uh, intellectual curiosity that we bring to our clinical, uh, uh, you know, a setting, you know, that we love, you know, hard clinical questions and, and making great diagnoses and um, thinking through a case, I think that same intellectual stimulation can come through uh, academics. Um, and also, um, just as I want to help uh, the patient um, before me in the clinic and the patient that's before me on the operating room table, I think there's a real opportunity for surgeons to help hundreds and thousands of people um, through uh, the discovery and innovation of new therapies, new clinical trials, 
and also uh, through a better understanding of healthcare delivery systems and how we can um, risk gratify patients relative to their uh, perioperative risk and perioperative um, outcomes. So, um, you know, as you can tell, hopefully, you know, I feel passionately about this. I feel strongly about this. And, you know, we're incredibly lucky um, uh, to be in a rich uh, intellectual and academic environment um, within the HBV community, as there's many uh, great surgeon scientists in our field. You know, it's, it's interesting, Tim, one of the best talks I ever really saw you give, quite honestly, and that's, I think, high praise because your, your talks are always so, so superb, was your presidential address two or three years ago in Las Vegas at the AAS-SUS meeting. And you talked about a lot of things, as I'm sure you recall. Um, some of them were, were sort of based on productivity and a positive outlook. And to be honest, in, in watching... Um, the last dance story about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. There's elements, um, uh, you know, sitting there quietly uh, uh, watching that great series that that take my brain back to your talk. And I was wondering if you could just summarize for us uh, sort of what your intent was in that talk and what your overall message was, because I think it's really valuable. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, thanks, Chad. I, you know, one of the things I wanted to emphasize in um, my uh, AAS presidential talk, again, was this whole idea of having impact um, and really um, challenging uh, folks and challenging myself to really uh, think big, you know, to spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what are the real challenges, problems, issues that need to be uh, tackled. And again, getting back to this idea that surgeons are very well positioned to identify those uh, problems um, and issues and questions and to answer them. Um, and I think that to do that though, it takes hard work. And uh, I've been watching The Last Dance also. And I think one of the take home messages uh, from I get um, is that if you want to achieve uh, excellence, um, that you need to be dedicated, um, you need to work hard, and I think there's no um, kind of avoiding uh, the 10,000 hours um, and uh, hard work. And one of the things that I highlighted during my presidential talk was this idea of, you know, what are, you know, kind of the, the tips for success. And um, I highlighted four things, um, which I think I, I still think about uh, to this day. And one of them is, you know, that you have to work hard earn. Um, and if you want to get things uh, done, that there's no real elevated to success, you know, you have to take the stairs. Um, and, you know, there is a lot to be said about uh, inspiration, but there's similarly a lot to be said about uh, perspiration. And one needs to be willing to put in the work uh, like Michael Jordan did or um, Tom Brady, um, since I'm a Patriots fan, even though he's no longer with our team. Um, there's just no beating around the bush. I think the other thing is that one needs to learn to prioritize. Um, you know, we are constantly pulled in multiple different directions all day uh, long with our clinical responsibilities, research, administrative, educational, uh, personal, family, everything. And so it's impossible to accomplish everything. So I would um, challenge myself and others to try to prioritize what are the things that are most important to you in your career? What are perhaps those things that are low priority but high impact um, that, you know, if you spent time uh, working on, 
that it actually would make a difference um, to patients um, and to um, the care that we deliver. And then the other thing is to build a team. And Amir asked me, you know, well, you know, how have you um, been successful and, and been so prolific? It's because, you know, it's always about team. And uh, to quote Michael Jordan again, you know, individuals win games, but, um, you know, teams win championships. And you need to build a team around yourself and empower that team um, to uh, operate at the top of their license. Um, and then I think you will uh, be able to collectively accomplish uh, great things. And then finally, um, you know, you have to hold yourself accountable. Um, no one can do this for you. Um, you know, people uh, talk about having protected time, um, but I always say, you know, you, there's no such thing as protected time. You have to protect mm. your own time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no, no one sets your alarm clock except for you. Um, and um, no one decides how far you're going to work except for you. So I think you have to hold yourself accountable and uh, focus on what you are passionate about and what's your priority in life try to identify what you um, are very passionate about, and then you'll be willing to put in that discretionary effort um, and really uh, work hard to make a difference. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's, it's interesting watching that documentary. It's so topical. I think the whole world's watching it, quite frankly. But, you know, I, I do wonder what some of the earlier influences were with Jordan. Um, you know, because when you mentioned Nick Vote and you mentioned, you know, Ken, um, Tommy, yep. Really, yeah, really, really hardworking, uh, great role model HBB surgeons for sure, um, who clearly have that passion and follow a lot of those things that you that you talk about. So, you, you know, some of it's nature, some of it's nurture, there's no doubt, but the mix is also interesting. Yeah, I think clearly, and I mean, again, going back to my own parents, I mean, I think in the last dance, I mean, Jordan uh, spoke extensively about his father, James, and the influence that um, he had on him, and um, the um, documentary clearly highlights some specific moments in Jordan's youth where his father um, kind of said to him, you know, you, you've been um, kind of screwing up here, and if you do this, you're not going to be able to play sports. I don't know if you remember that. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and Jordan said he turned on a dime and then just really got his act together. So I think, you know, it's family influences, it's friend influences, it's mentor influences, um, and then, um, you know, but ultimately you have to internalize all that yourself, right? And you have to own it and you have to um, uh, leverage um, everything that people provide for you in their advice and in their mentorship and turn it into something. And only you can do that. Yeah, totally. It's, it's really no surprise, Tim, that you're an associate editor or an editor-in-chief for a number of different journals, Annals of Surgical Oncology, Jogs, JAMA Surgery, and so on. How do you view that those jobs or that category of job for you within the greater um, a day or the greater week of of of, uh, of your of your time? Yeah, well, I mean, I I love um, the activity that um, I'm lucky and, and blessed to have through these different uh, journals. Um, you know, I think that uh, part of our job is um, as researchers researchers is to innovate to discover. Um, and to do great science and discover new things, um, at the same time, you have to disseminate it. Um, and so um, unless you're able to write and get your work out there um, so others can um, peer review it um, and adopt it, 
um, then we are doing a disservice to um, the research that we're doing. So I view it as kind of the final step in a robust research process. And in my um, role um, as uh, editor, associate editor for a number of different journals, I feel very privileged to be able to um, review the latest science, um, the latest, greatest research that is coming out from um, our surgeons and our researchers, and to really see how people put their work together um, to um, have uh, impact. Um, so it's really a, a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, there's no doubt. It really is a privilege to both review and, and edit. Um, it's, it's, it's a remarkable experience. I'm just curious, you know, I, and, and all, di all disclosure, to be honest, I, I asked uh, Keith Lillimo the same question. How do you handle um, uh, the scenario where your reviewers uh, provide a rejection and you get a relatively intense or terse letter back from the authors um, that maybe is, is difficult to handle? How, how do you view that scenario? As an editor? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so obviously, um, you know, always do our absolute best to be fair, just, transparent, um, and, um, you know, come to find out everyone feels very passionately about their work, you know. Everyone uh, thinks that their work is fantastic, and most of the time it is. Um, uh, sometimes it's not. And I also think that different uh, pieces of uh, research and writing um, may just not be a good fit with a certain journal. So the first thing I would say to authors is, you know, don't take it personal. It's, it's not personal. And it may be that it's good science and it was even well-written. It's just not a right fit for a particular journal um, or it's not the right time because other papers in this area have uh, similarly been published recently and things like that. I think if the authors bring up uh, uh, salient points um, that um, go to that there was some type of misinterpretation or erroneous um, um, interpretation of their data that would speak to why the paper was rejected, then um, we take that into consideration and occasionally would um, have it re-reviewed by uh, separate reviewers. However, in general, my response to um, authors, and trust me, I've been on the other side of this many, many times, is um, to look at the comments from the reviewers, to put that in the top of your desk drawer or on a folder on your uh, computer, um, to walk away for a few days and then come back to it and read it again. And I would um, uh, surmise in most instances, if you are honest with yourself, the reviewers generally have good points mm -hmm. and you should incorporate those good points, move on and uh, try to revise the work and submit it to a different journal that may be a better fit. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think in Calgary, they call it the, the one week rule because I, that's exactly what I say to the residents. When that negative review comes back, your initial interpretation is, is often like, not only am I a bad scientist, I'm a bad person. So put it away for a week and then read it with fresh eyes, you know? Right. And, and don't, again, don't take it personally. It's, yeah. Trust me, I know it's hard for me not to do that too sometimes. Um, but really try to look at it based on the scientific merit and something that's trying to help you improve your uh, scientific work. For, for trainees or, or early faculty, is there any absolute um, do's or don't do's um, that you would advise in terms of submitting uh, their their work to a journal like like any of yours. Well, I think um, a couple things. One is just try to work on your writing. You know, the people say you know um, 
that um, you know, uh, you know, bad writing can make good science look bad. So um, you know, even if your science is is good and um, solid, um, if, if things are sloppy and poorly written, um, I am um, amazed at um, some folks' command of the the written word. <laughs> um, and so I, I would just spend time on the presentation because if the presentation is poor and sloppy, um, sometimes you won't even get to the science. So that would be the first thing um, I would say. Um, I think the second thing is, um, you know, uh, avoid uh, focusing on issues of this is the biggest cohort or this is the first cohort. You know, size and primacy um, are less important than impact. So I think um, trying to frame the scientific question relative to some gap in knowledge is important. Um, frequently, what I am seeing is actually pretty good papers from pretty good science, just bad novelty. Um, lots of me too's um, that are in the literature. And I think that is something when you're shooting for a higher impact journal, you really have to identify what is the gap in knowledge that you are trying to address through this scientific endeavor. Dr. Pollack, um, speaking about gaps, I think one of my favorite sort of areas of your research that, uh, that, that made me a huge fan of yours is your work on regret. And uh, you kind of talked about this a little bit or alluded to this a little bit in, in your background as a, in, in uh, theology. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your paper? Uh, actually, I guess you have several papers on this topic, but can you tell us a, in particular about your 2017 paper in the World Journal of Surgery where you systematically reviewed regret in surgical decision-making? Can you, can you tell our listeners, firstly, why did you become interested in this topic? And then secondly, what did you find? Yeah, so that's a great question, Amir. So I, I, I think for me personally, most good questions or relevant questions come out of real experiences, clinical experiences. And, um, you know, it was interesting as someone who does HPV surgery, you know, do a whipple on a patient. Um, and then only a month or two months later, you know, they have a liver met. Um, there's a lot of regret that may go on there. You know, uh, there's regret amongst the patient. Wow. I regret having that operation. And then I, I would experience regret. You know, I'd be like, oh, man, I'm re I regret doing that operation. You know, should I have done something different? And so, you know, in diseases uh, that um, have um, poor prognoses, um, I think that decisional regret is, is a real thing. Um, and uh, decisional regret, as we and others have shown, can adversely impact uh, patient outcomes. Um, with increased anxiety, depression, and worse quality of life. Um, and there's nothing worse in my mind than having done an operation on a patient and then there is a suboptimal outcome because they recur early. And then on top of that, they also have the mental anguish of having regretted a decision that they made two or three months previously. I think similarly, when we think of provider self-care, um, there is a regret that we experience as surgeons not only around uh, a prognosis or recurrence, but you know, every week when we have our M&M, mortality and morbidity uh, conference, um, I see how surgeons can have regrets around decisions that they um, have made. So this whole idea of decisional regret is this feeling that you know, if you had, had made another choice, um, that it would have been better. 
And, you know, I kind of con uh, conceive of uh, decisional regret as um, omission and commission. You know, omission is I regret not having done that. I wish I had done that. And then commission is, our, oh, man, I, I, I regret that I did do that. Um, and I think that a lot of this goes on in our minds implicitly. And sometimes we don't explicitly draw it to the front of our mind, either as a patient or provider, and, um, you know, and discuss it. And I think one of the things that is interesting, to me at least, is um, this whole concept of like shopping for a surgeon. And we kind of have this idea that if you shop long enough, you'll, you'll find a surgeon to do whatever operation you're looking for. And I think part of that is because different surgeons have different levels of decisional regret. And we did one study when we presented surgeons different stylized scenarios of clinical situations with the exact same patient and tumor specific factors. But we showed that it was really like, um, you know, buckshot, you know, all over the map, whether a surgeon would offer a patient this operation or not offer a patient an operation. And we looked at that relative to the amount of regret a surgeon would have, whether they did or did not do the surgery. And, um, you know, based on different thresholds of regret, um, one surgeon will do Operation X and one surgeon won't do Operation X. And I think it's just a very interesting phenomena to think about surgical decision-making that is not just based on the X's and O's of patient and tumor characteristics, but also our own implicit subjective thresholds for how much regret we might have, whether we do or do not do a specific operation. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I wanted to uh, pick uh, up on one specific part of, of your um, systematic review, and that's this whole idea about shared decision-making. And um, your, your papers talk about, uh, in fact, the, the idea of shared decision-making and, and how that can be important, but not all patients want the same level of uh, input or... Uh, the you know the same amount of information or the same amount of control you know we always talk about patient-centered care or patient autonomy but from from looking at your work it seems very clear that not all patients want that level of of power or choice and can you talk a little bit about that yeah, absolutely we've been doing a lot of research in this area now and um, you know one of uh, my uh, team members uh, Liz Palmer is a clinical psychologist and has been doing a lot of, um, you know, qualitative and quantitative uh, research in this area. And, um, you know, what we've been uh, looking at is that, you know, we kind of think of shared decision-making as a good thing, and it is a good thing. I think the danger, though, as you alluded to, is if we think of it as in some monolithic fashion, that shared decision-making is one size fits all. So when I walk into that clinic room, you know, this is the way that Tim Pollack does shared decision-making, and it doesn't matter if Mr. Jones or Mrs. Smith or Mr. Matthews or whoever else is in that room, this is how Pollock does shared decision-making. I do not think that that is the appropriate way necessarily to do shared decision-making. What we have found, back to decisional regret, is that patients have the least amount of risk for decisional regret not necessarily when you do shared decision-making, whatever that means. It's when you arrive at a decision with the patient that aligns with the way that they like to make decisions. So what we have been trying to uh, do is to better understand how different patients like to make different decisions. 
And one thing that we've been interested in is if we can better understand how perhaps you, Amir, make big decisions in your life. Like, how do you make a decision about who to choose as your partner in life or how to buy a house or where you're going to do your residency? There's probably certain ways that you go about making decisions in your life and how you involve other people in those types of decisions. And if we had some insight into that, could we use, could we use that to inform how physicians should be interacting with different patients in different ways so we could apply a more personalized, we talk about personalized medicine, or how about personalized decision-making so that we can flex as providers and truly provide the uh, context and an approach to shared decision-making that the patient is actually looking for, not some preconceived notion of what I have as shared decision-making when I walk into that room. And I have to make a comment on this. I think one of my favorite things about this is that this research really isn't just about surgeons, but it's really actually looking at human nature and, and who we are as people. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of really cool and really uh, impactful research, as you say, is that it it has spillover to not just surgery, but, uh, you know, to many aspects of, uh, let's say, psychology, or and it teaches us something about how we as human beings make decisions. And, and I just to follow up with that as well, what do you think that surgeons can do better in trying to understand how they themselves make decisions and how patients make decisions? Because, you know, it's one of the, one of the things that's always shocked me is that patients come into your office and you say, yeah, you need an operation. And they say, yeah, okay, sign me up. But, and it, and it's amazing that you can get their trust so quickly, but um, I mean, clearly that's not always the case. What advice would you have for surgeons uh, for themselves and for their patients? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, and that's um, a big focus of our research right now because I completely agree with you. I mean, the, the best thing is really to get to know someone. Um, however, as surgeons, we frequently don't have that opportunity. It's not like family medicine or internal medicine where you spend years getting to know a patient and getting to know the nuances of their life, their family, and kind of really get to know them and understand how they like to approach things. Um, to your point, um, it's not uncommon where I, I, I meet a patient or, or you meet a patient or, or Chad meets a patient and within, a, within an hour, they're agreeing to some crazy big operation where I'm going to take a third of their pancreas out, part of their intestine and part of their stomach and they're like, sounds good. And we, we just met. Um, and so, you know, that's why I think that all the more reason for surgeons, we have to be very attuned um, to how patients like to make decisions. And we have to, I think, spend the time to understand, you know, I always lead with, well, you know, what is your understanding of this disease? What is your understanding of this operation? You know, um, how would you like us to make the decision today? Who would you like to be involved in this decision? And I think it involves not only the surgeon, but it has to involve the whole team from the moment the patient shows up and interfaces with the resident. So we have to be modeling this behavior to our residents and also other providers on our team like the um, APPs um, and such. Um, and we are currently trying to identify different tools um, that uh, perhaps the patient could um, interface with before they show up, again, to kind of help frame um, the uh, context for surgeons. So before even they meet a patient, they could have some idea 
about the decision-making style that this patient uh, may prefer. And we've recently some published some papers looking at different personality traits amongst patients and how personality traits amongst patients can track with how they like make how to uh, how they like to make decisions. And so, if we could do some work uh, in the pre kind of clinical setting to identify those factors, it may help me better understand when I walk through that door that in general, this is how Amir likes to approach um, big decisions. What excites me about this particular program that you're moving forward with is is the reality. I think this is probably a teachable skill. It's a learnable skill. And we all know as we're training and maybe with our, in our fellowship and maybe then as even as partners, some folks are so eloquent, elegant and nuanced with, with patients and achieve that endpoint so quickly. And for others, it's a struggle. But you're right. I think if, if you pay attention and you have insight and you're willing to learn a better way, uh, I, I think everything you talked about can, can be taught. And you guys are doing an incredible job of communicating that as time goes on. Yeah, I, I agree, Chad. I mean, I think these are teachable um, skills and it's incumbent upon us um, as more senior uh, surgeons, again, to be modeling these behaviors for the medical students and the residents. Um, this is an important skill, uh, just like learning how to do a PJ um, or an HJ is an important skill. Mm. Um, these are challenging diseases that our patients face and we need to be holistic in our approach to the care of our patients. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, Tim, you've been at The Ohio State now for, for a little bit as the chair, and I wanted to ask you a, a, a three-part question. When, when did you first know that that would be your, your goal in terms of that, that level of leadership, and, and what pulled you into that? Second question then is, um, what are some of your biggest challenges day-to-day? And then I'm also thirdly curious how COVID more recently um, has impacted uh, those things for you. Yeah, those are great questions. Well, I mean, Chad, I, I can honestly say that I, I never aspired uh, to be a chair. Um, I may have aspired to do the things that a chair does, um, but I never sat around thinking, oh, one day I want to be a chair. Right. Um, and I think that's an important lesson for me um, and perhaps others is, um, you know, live in the moment. Um, all of us are leaders uh, now. Um, and um, if one does a good job in your current role, it will get recognized um, and subsequent um, opportunities will open up. Um, and I think that if one is looking for future leadership opportunities um, all the time, then people can sense that you are not looking them in the eye, you are looking um, over their shoulder um, at the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, hopefully is something um, that I've never done. Um, I think, you know, just, uh, you know, I wanted to stretch myself both personally and professionally. Um, and that is why I chose to come uh, here to Ohio State. Um, this was an incredible opportunity. Um, and the institution here had a number of uh, elements that um, were incredibly appealing to me, both with regards to the, um, um, the largesse of the a medical center in the clinical operation being a hospital that's um, about 1,400 beds um, in a large, busy clinical platform, um, and also a real a dedication to academics, as we um, had previously highlighted, and then also the robust training programs with our residency and fellowship programs 
Um, I thought it was just an opportunity where I wanted to have impact going back to the my AAS presidential talk and to really pivot from a focus on me and my career to a focus on um, having impact, building a department, building a team, and elevating other people um, and having my success um, be measured in the reflection of other people's success uh, in the department. Um, because um, as all of us are growing older, I think you learn less, more and more that your own success uh, matters less and less. And really what all of our legacy will be is those that we have lifted up and um, promoted. Um, I think some of the biggest challenges um, is just, you know, um, you know, you know, it's just, there's a lot going on. It's a big place um, and servicing all of the missions um, and uh, maintaining um, a focus on um, clinics, academics, education, the administrative role um, can be challenging at times. And then um, also uh, just balancing um, being a surgeon. You know, I, I still am a surgeon and operate and I want to make sure that um, I always uh, remain a surgeon. Um, and then um, keeping time for my family and myself so I'm grounded and uh, centered. That has proven to be um, additionally challenging during this time of COVID-19, as uh, you alluded to in your last question. Um, it has been, um, you know, a challenging uh, time, um, you know, uh, during this um, um, pandemic um, to um, integrate um, all of the different moving pieces to a halt elective surgery and now beginning to unwind uh, this. And it reminds me of, um, you know, somewhat of Apollo 13, the movie, one of my favorite movies, when they realized that there was that, um, you know, fatal um, kind of um, important uh, flaw in, in the, um, you know, Apollo 13 mission. Yeah. And I, um, someone said, you know, this is uh, a disaster. And then one of the Apollo astronauts uh, said, no, this is going to be our finest moment. This is going to be our finest moment. And through all of the um, trials and tribulations of COVID-19, in some ways, I think this has collectively uh, been our finest moment, not only here at Ohio State, but also on um, healthcare workers nationwide, how we have um, really come together to rise up, to face this head on, to really show that folks can work together, the teamwork, the flexibility, the innovation, the um, uh, heroism, the courageousness, the compassionate, um, nature of people. Um, I think it truly has been a shining moment for uh, surgeons and healthcare professionals, not only here at Ohio State, but nationwide. And that um, uplifts me every day. One of the things, Dr. Pollock, that I've really enjoyed um, watching uh, through Twitter is how you've really kind of engaged with residents and, and, and the people that you uh, you uh, are in charge of in a, in a really unique way. Like, I, uh, for example, I really enjoyed that little Peloton challenge that you had against uh, some of the other department chairs and surgeons. Uh, and I, I think that requires a certain amount of vulnerability to put yourself out there. Um, how have you approached that uh, sort of specifically around social media, but also more generally in terms of reaching out to your constituents and, and the people you serve? Yeah, definitely was uh, some vulnerability there, um, given that I came in absolutely dead last in the uh, Peloton uh, challenge on, on the bike and um, um, kind of by a long shot, I was dead last. So, um, you know, I think it's important, you know, you know, people are people. And, um, you know, it sounds corny, but, you know, I think, you know, people aren't surgeons. 
people are people. And, you know, we have to meet people where they're at. Everyone has a life story. Um, and, you know, showing that, that I'm human, right? And that I want to I meet you as a person and understand what's going on, not only in your professional life, but your personal life, I think is important all the time. And even more now during COVID-19 where we're separated and the, there can be this potential for isol, uh, isolation. So we've worked very hard to um, come up with different wellness activities, um, whether it be the uh, biking Peloton uh, challenge, um, trivia nights. Uh, we had the newlywed game the other night, and now we're going to have some Uno face-off uh, next week. But really trying to build um, camaraderie and morale um, because, um, you know, people, um, you know, will um, thrive um, if you uh, engage them and are interested in them um, from a genuine humanism point of view. And I genuinely am. I mean, at the end of the day, I want people to feel fulfilled. I want people to feel happy. Um, and it's all about like a life well lived, right? And being surgeons is a huge part of that. Um, yet there are other parts of um, our lives that are equally as important that um, as leaders, we need to make sure that we are attending to uh, for those uh, people who are working uh, with us um, as our colleagues. I think that's fantastic. And uh, certainly to an outside observer, I, I've really appreciated that uh, that level of commitment to to really making sure that the well-being of uh, all the members of your of your department and your division are, are um, taken care of. I wanted to ask something a bit selfish in that, um, what advice do you have for any early career surgeons who are interested in, in leadership? Is, are, are there any recommended societies or activities? Yeah, I guess um, a couple things. One is um, spend a lot of time initially thinking about what you're passionate about. You know, know thyself. Um, I cannot help you get to where you want to be as a leader, as a chair, as a mentor, if you do not know where you want to go. Um, so this is your life. This is not my life. So I think I would um, strongly encourage folks to take time to really think about what makes you happy, what makes you fulfilled, what are you passionate about, where can you have impact, for the young people out there, you have a whole career in front of you, 20, 30 plus years to make a difference. What is going to be your trajectory? So before you jump into the deep end, you know, really spend some time thinking about what road you want to get on. You know, obviously you can change paths, change roads, but really spend some time um, getting to know yourself and what your passions are. I would say that is the first thing. The second thing is um, find great mentors, you know, and don't be afraid to um, move on um, if your mentors aren't working out. I always say, you know, don't fire your mentors, just let them fade away. Um, but if uh, people aren't working out for you, find new mentors. All of us need teams of mentors, people that can um, kind of invigorate us, motivate us, um, act as, um, you know, that light that draws us uh, forward. So I think that um, is super important. Uh, the third thing I would say is, you know, lean into it um, and work hard um, um, and realize that, you know, depending on, you know, what you want to achieve, you, you'll have to alter your efforts. 
Um, and, you know, if you want to be the Michael Jordan or the Tom Brady, then um, there's going to be a lot of practice and a lot of running the steps and a lot of, um, you know, uh, uh, free throws you're going to have to put up in order to accomplish uh, what you uh, want to accomplish. Um, and then I would also say, you know, don't take yourself seriously. Um, you know, enjoy yourself. Um, have um, balance um, in your life. Um, I think that um, if you're happy, um, you'll um, succeed in the long term um, much more um, likely than if you're not. And then as far as societies are concerned, um, you know, I'm kind of, um, uh, you know, I don't want to be uh, too much of a self-serving here, but I would have to say, you know, one would be the Association for Academic Surgery, especially for young people. That um, um, society is specifically um, focused on young surgeons, and there's lots of uh, opportunity for young surgeons to get involved and to quickly uh, move into leadership positions um, in the uh, AAS. And one of the other benefits of the AAS is it is discipline um, uh, agnostic or very ecumenical. So um, it is a great way to get to know people in other disciplines. And then as your career matures and their career matures, you have a wide network of individuals in surgery writ large beyond HPB. I would also recommend that you get involved in the HPBA. The HPBA is the premier HPB surgical association um, in uh, Canada, North America, Central America, and South America, and has a number of rich opportunities with regards to mentorship, um, leadership, and the ability to present your work, um, get to know people, create collaborations, and really advance your career. So those are the two associations that I would focus on. It's perfect that you bring that up, uh, Tim. And as listeners know, for the most part, I think it's safe to say um, you're the current president of the HPBA. What has that experience been like so far this year? And, you know, I would, from the outside, it certainly looks like the honor of a subspecialty career, uh, the culmination of it in many ways. Um, how, how do you frame that experience so far? You know, well, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky, uh, Chad, to be the president of the HPBA this year and, and have a wonderful a group of um, you know, executive officers with me, you know, um, Mike, uh, Magella, and Sean. Um, and we've been uh, working hard uh, to continue the success of our association. Um, much of our efforts recently have done uh, COVID-19. We've had two uh, very successful uh, webinars, uh, one with the executive officers as the uh, pandemic began um, to uh, help our membership understand the implications of the uh, pandemic and how to deal with, um, you know, uh, canceling or postponing non-essential surgeries. And then just yesterday, an additional webinar with past presidents of the HPBA, many of whom are uh, leaders at their local hospitals, uh, discussing how we are now going to have to adopt to a new normal and begin um, a slow road to recovery. Um, in addition, there have been a number of other logistical issues um, with regards to the HPBA that we have been dealing with, even beginning to think about what our meeting will look like in March um, as this uh, pandemic may uh, last for a number of months. It wouldn't be fair if we uh, didn't end the podcast with ask, asking you a couple of sports questions. So since you've brought up <laughs> 12 a, a couple of times, you're, you know, as you said, you're a Boston guy and 
I have a particular love of Boston, as we've talked about before, given our, our family history. Um, but I'm curious, how, how do you think TB12 will do in Tampa? And how do you think uh, your boy Belly and, and the uh, Patriot crew will, will do without him? Yeah, so I've been saying, uh, no Brady, no problem. And Belichick, <laughs> we, and Belichick we trust. Yes. So, so uh, Gronk and uh, Brady are, are dead to me at the moment. Um, and I, I trust, uh, I trust Belichick and I think we're going to, I think we're going to be uh, fine. You've been listening to cold steel, the official podcast of the Canadian journal of surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback. So feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.